Well, our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 12, as we continue looking at some of the mothers of Christ, the women um, whom God used in raising up the line of our Savior. Um, Just a recollection of some of the context, chapter 11 relates the sin that David committed with Bathsheba, how he took her and uh, sinned with her while his army was in the field, while her husband was in battle for the nation, and when David should have been leading them. She became pregnant. He sought to cover that up by recalling her husband from the battle as a messenger, but he was too faithful. He would not go home while the army was deployed. And so then David caused the sword of the Ammonites to be used to bring that man, Uriah, to his death. And then took his wife Bathsheba home as his own. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. 
How then can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him, and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved family of God in Christ, this is a unique account for a number of reasons. It's probably not the first text that would come to our minds when we think of Christmas-related passages. And it's also not a text that immediately throws the spotlight on Bathsheba. But you see, there's a problem that we often encounter in Scripture. And that problem is that we tend to take the most obvious lesson from the text and dwell on that and then move on without recognizing that that obvious lesson from the text is not the only thing that God intends to teach us from that text. And if we look beyond that obvious lesson, we will often find truths that blow us away. Now, this text... I think is probably well known to us because it's a text that reminds us of some very important lessons that focus on David. It shows us, for one thing, the grievous cost of sin. How the sins that David committed, which were in fact terrible, they affected not only him, but they affected his family. As a matter of fact, if we continue reading in 2 Samuel, we will see that they continue to affect his family for years to come, and not only his family, but the whole country. And we focus on that. We see that that's a significant thing. And we also see uh, David's response to the sickness of his child, his son, and how he weeps and grieves and fasts for this child, but also the confidence that he shows once this child dies. That this child is a child of the covenant and that therefore he can be confident in that child's end. And we rightly take comfort, should take comfort in that. David isn't grieving as one who is unsure of what has happened to his child and he's not... He's not just going on with life. 
because he has no idea what happened to his son. No, he knows that this child is one whom God has said, or to whom God has said, I will be your God and you will be my child. And since God took him at such an early age, it's clear that God is faithful to his promises. And so David could go and could worship with confidence, with joy. And we look at that and, and that's a great lesson from this text. But then we miss Bathsheba. Because she's in the shadow here, but, but she's here. And in Bathsheba, we see some beautiful lessons, not just, not just about a woman who is on a number of levels victimized, a woman who is made to suffer because of the sins of another. But we see a woman who is privileged twice over to become a mother in ways that reveal Christ. And that's what we want to focus on this morning. Not so much on David, though we have to notice some things about David and about what happens to David in order to recognize what comes of Bathsheba. But we want to focus on Bathsheba and see how God twice employs Bathsheba as a mother of Christ through the sons whom she bears. So that's what we're going to look at. And we're going to see, first of all, how she becomes the mother of a son who is destroyed in order to deflect God's just wrath. That's our first point. But again, we need to understand the history to see that. Chapter 11 tells us the story of how Bathsheba comes to be in the palace. Again, briefly, David should have been. As a matter of fact, the way it's written, it tells us that this was the time when, when kings were out leading their armies in battle and David was in Jerusalem. While the army, being led by his general Joab, is out battling against the Ammonites. But David, he's not doing what he's called to do. He's back in his palace, relaxing, rejoicing. And while he's there, he sees Bathsheba, bathing on her roof. Now, she's not being an exhibitionist in this. Most people would not see what's happening on the roof, right? This is not an uncommon thing, but David happens to be in a, a building that affords him a view. And so he sends for Bathsheba. He brings her to himself, and uh, she becomes pregnant. Now, we know what David should have done there. He should have confessed his sin. He should have faced up to the consequences. As difficult as that is, we know that that's always the right thing to do. And that God will bless us for the humility that we show, for the faith that we show in confessing our sin and seeking forgiveness. But instead, instead of that, he tries to cover it up. He uses deception to bring Bathsheba's husband Uriah back, assuming that he'll go home, that he will spend some time with his wife, that, that he then will be able to take credit for this child. But Uriah is too noble. He won't go home. He won't enjoy the comforts of his home and his wife while the army is deployed. So then David sends a message to Joab. He wants Uriah put on the front line and then he wants everyone else 
to withdraw. He's going to sacrifice Uriah to the sword of the Ammonites. And that's exactly what happens. And chapter 11 closes by telling us when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Ominously, however, the chapter closes by telling us, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now this sin, this series of sins that David committed was deep and wide. I mean, he embraced adultery, obviously, desiring and taking the wife of another, but also he embraced the sin of deceit, bearing false witness to Uriah and to all Israel. He plunged himself into sins of covetousness and greed and lust and finally murder. David's sins were grievous and they were focused on Uriah the Hittite, who, by the way, was one of David's mighty men. If we continued reading in 2 Samuel, in chapter 23, we read of the exploits of Uriah the Hittite. He was essentially the ancient equivalent of a green beret or a navy seal. Uriah's bravery in battle was legendary. And yet David sinned horribly against Uriah and against Bathsheba, whose husband was murdered, whose honor was stolen, who was compelled by the king's authority to betray her husband. And don't overlook that compulsion aspect. Folks are quick to read this text in light of modern sensibilities, assuming that Bathsheba had every opportunity to reject David. She didn't. When a king in ancient times commanded you to come, you came. When the king commanded you to act, you acted and you failed to do so under penalty of death. So we don't know Bathsheba's heart. We don't know whether she desired what happened to her or not. But we know that even if she didn't, she had no choice. And that therefore David, who had the greater authority, the greater power, David bore the ultimate sin, the ultimate guilt here. And so Nathan, as a prophet, as God's servant, comes and confronts David. We've seen how wisely he did so, appealing to David's sense of justice to lead David to condemn his own sin powerfully. And then Nathan tells David, your sin will have consequences, just consequences. You shamed Uriah, you will be shamed. You brought evil to Uriah's house, evil will dwell in your house. You selfishly took the wife of another, another will in time take your wives. You betrayed someone close to you, someone close to you will now betray you. Those are just consequences, eye for an eye consequences. As David has done to others, it will be done to him. And that has to happen. It has to happen in order to show God's enemies that God does not wink at sin. He is a just God. It has to happen for the sake of Israel, that they might know that his demand that they be holy as he is holy, David's not exempt from that. All men... All men are called to live before God and to answer to Him. But David also needs these consequences. When we sin, we justify that sin in our own eyes. 
We lie to ourselves in a way that no one else would believe, but we, we take hold of those lies. Justifying the sin in our own eyes, telling ourselves that it's not so bad, that it was okay. And oftentimes it takes painful consequences in order to open our eyes to the ugliness of our sin. David needed these consequences to awaken him to his sin. And that worked. Having heard from Nathan, he confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. Now notice what he says there. I have sinned against the Lord. Because even though Uriah was the target of most of his sins, and Bathsheba also, and Israel more broadly, all of it was a sin against God and against him above all else. It was God's law that he broke. It was God's holiness that he annihilated. It was God's image that he twisted in such an ugly way. And it was God's holy name that would be blasphemed because of it. It was ultimately God whom David offended, just as our sins offend God above all else. And therefore, David deserved death. At the very start, God told us that. In the day that you eat of it, he told Adam, you will surely die. That's the consequence of sin. Uh, Paul tells us in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's what David deserved. And so when he confessed, he knew that's the sentence that ought to be carried out. But what does Nathan tell him? The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now notice that. The Lord has put away your sin. He doesn't say God has forgotten David's sins or that they are no longer in existence because God is just. He can't simply ignore sin. The price has to be paid. But he basically says your sin, your guilt, it's been deflected. God has put it away from you. And in this lies the surprising thing. David has been freed from the burden of his sin, but the debt still must be paid. So God deflects that debt elsewhere. Kids, think of it. Think of the, the cost of your sin, the consequence of your sin, like a soccer ball or a hockey puck. Because you've committed that sin, its consequence is headed right for your goal. Like that, that ball headed right for the goal. If it goes in, you lose, right? Well, what if the goalie stops the ball or knocks the puck away? That ball, that puck, it doesn't cease to exist, does it? No, it just goes somewhere else for someone else to deal with. Well, that's what happens to the cost of our sin. It doesn't just evaporate. It just doesn't go into the goal. It doesn't cause us to lose. But it still needs to be dealt with because it's still there, right? Well, that's the surprising thing that Nathan says here. The original language of verse 14 is is a bit unusual, to say the least. And, uh, and so it's translated a bit freely in our pew Bibles when he says, 
because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. What it literally says can be rendered two different ways. The New King James renders it one of those ways. Because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. By this sin you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, to take God's name in vain. Or it could also be rendered because by this deed you have surely blasphemed with the enemies of the Lord. Either of those is a valid rendering of the words. And that's important. Because both of those statements are correct. Looking at what David has done, the enemies of God are going to be able to say, Look, God is not just. God does not treat people alike. He's not fair. And that's blasphemy. But at the same time, the reason they were able to say that is because David had acted like an Ammonite. He had acted like a Philistine. He had acted like a rank, rebellious unbeliever. David's sin was an act of contempt that put him squarely in the camp of God's enemies. And he deserved to die for it. But instead, Nathan says... The child who is born to you shall die. We read that and we say, what? The child will die? David committed the sin. David deserves to die. Why does the child have to die? God doesn't punish the children for the sins of the fathers. That's what the Bible says. In Ezekiel 18, God clearly declares, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. And that's not contradicted when in the law in Exodus 20 we read that um, the Lord your God is a jealous God visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. What he's saying by that is the children will see the sins of the fathers and they will imitate them. But ultimately they will answer for their own sins, the fathers and the sons. So what's God doing here? Folks, he's showing us what happens to that deflected sin. Because you see, God is just but he is also merciful. And the only way he can do that, the only way he can take away David's sin, is if someone else dies. Now that son, he's not the one who's paying for David's sin. He's showing us how David's sin will be paid for. Romans 3 tells us that this is the case for all of us. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. God himself provides our righteousness. He's the only one who can. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. That's true of every one of us. David's not alone. Every one of us deserves what David deserved. Which is death. Because every one of us in our sin. Has blasphemed alongside of the enemies of God. 
And every one of us as a professing Christian who has sinned has given great occasion for the enemies of God to blaspheme. Not one of us is more righteous inherently than David. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So where then is our hope? Well, we read in Romans 3.25 that he sent Jesus Christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You see, it's Jesus whom the son of Bathsheba foreshadows. David sinned, the son died. We sinned. The Son died. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time. So that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The only way God could justify us and still be just, the only way God could be merciful toward us and still be true to His just nature is if someone else died for the sin that was deflected. And that's what Bathsheba's son shows. You shall not die, Nathan says. Your son will die. That's the only way we can be saved. It's through the son of Bathsheba who is destroyed. Not that son, but the greater son, Jesus Christ, whom he foreshadowed. The greater son, Jesus Christ, whom he revealed. Because Jesus died, we're able to live. Because Jesus suffered for our sin, which he didn't deserve, which we deserved. Therefore, God was able to put away our sin, and David's. Well, of course, the son did die. David fasted, prayed, begged God until he knew that God would not relent. And then he arose, he washed, changed clothes, and he worshipped. An act that he could do only because of God's mercy. Then he goes and comforts his wife Bathsheba, and in due time, we're told, she bore him a second son. And this son also was destined to be a living image of Christ. Because in this son, we see that Bathsheba is the mother of a son raised up to reveal God's gracious restoration. David later testified concerning this son's birth, that it had been revealed to him that this son was coming by the Lord. In 2 Chronicles 22, verse 9, David recalls how God said, Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. See, that's what Solomon means. It means peace. By this son would come peace for the people of Israel. Peace from warfare, peace from bloodshed, peace from their enemies on every side. This son would be a sign of peace for Israel, but also for David and Bathsheba. Children are a blessing, says the Lord. And so in giving this child... God is showing, you are at peace with me. We are reconciled. I'm going to continue giving you my blessing. 
Solomon was to be a son of peace, and he was to be the establisher of a kingdom of peace. You see, the Lord had given David some excellent promises concerning his kingdom. But in those promises, he said that these, the fulfillment would come not through David, but through his son. In chapter 7, he says that that son shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And he says, my steadfast love will not depart from him. David's house and his kingdom would endure forever through the work, through the labor, through the reign of that son whom Bathsheba would bear. And in the coming of that son, David can see that despite his sin, God has not forgotten him. Despite his rebellion, God has not taken away his promised blessing. In fact, God goes even farther because we read at the end of our text that the Lord loved him, that is the son, and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Jedidiah means loved of Yahweh. God wants David to know assuredly David has been forgiven and restored and the son of David will live in the midst of the fullness of God's love. In fact, we could say that God raised up this son to bring peace to those for whom the other son died. Do you see what God's revealing here? God had to destroy the son that David might live. But God also raises up the son that his servant might have peace and might live in the midst of a kingdom of peace and might know the fullness of God's blessing. In Solomon, God is ensuring the fullness of all that he promised to David and to us. He's ensuring that not only is our sin forgiven, not only is our guilt taken away, but also we have peace with God. Also, we can know the love of God. Also, we are brought into the kingdom and made the the servants of God against whom none of God's enemies will have any power. None of whom will ever be snatched away from His perfect care. We had to see the death of the first son because that showed how Jesus came to die for our sin. But we also have to see the second son because that, shows, that son shows how Jesus would be raised up and drawn up to heaven where he reigns at the right hand of God the Father even now. To rule all things for our good. To ensure that none of our enemies have power to guard and direct all things for the good and for the well-being of our eternal kingdom. Beloved, when we When we gather for our Christmas celebrations, we think of Jesus laid in the manger, surrounded by shepherds who marvel at the birth of this child. We think of the Magi following a distant star, it having been revealed to them that the one whom they are coming to worship is the king. We think perhaps even of how God preserved this child 
sending him to Egypt to escape the wrath of Herod before bringing him back in his perfect timing. But we need to remember that this child who was born in Bethlehem, this child was the one who was born to die. And that it was only through his death that we could live. It was only through his death that we could escape the consequence of our sin. But he would not end in the grave. Because having died, he would rise up. Triumphant over our ancient enemy, death. Raised to the right hand of the Father where he would rule over as the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. Where he would reign over a kingdom that will never end. A kingdom that, as Daniel showed us, begins small, but soon comes to overcome and overshadow and crush all the kingdoms of men until it fills the whole of the creation, of which we are members, from which no one can snatch us, against which Satan has no power, which one day very soon will fill all the creation. When we think of that child in the manger, we need to remember why he came. As Bathsheba's two sons show us, he came to die, but he came also to raise. He came to suffer for us, but he came also to give us peace. And it's only because he fulfilled all of that that we can have life eternal in the presence of God. So let's not forget that, but instead let us rejoice in that. Let us rejoice that God has provided precisely, exactly what we need and let us trust in Him. Because children, that is the greatest gift you could ever receive. Life in Christ and all of the blessings, all of the privileges, all of the peace that come through Bathsheba's greatest son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you have provided in Christ a gift that is greater than any man could devise. Grant that we might remember that, marvel at that, and live in joyful response to what you have done in Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.